Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, and I run the U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this episode of The Ballpark, we're stepping out of our regularly scheduled programming to bring you insights from two experts on one of the most important parts of our economy, international trade. So you may be familiar with the phrase, it's the economy, stupid. And Democratic master strategist James Carville's statement is as true now as it was in 1992, when he coined it as part of Bill Clinton's first presidential campaign. And one key part of the economy is international trade, which is now very much back on people's radars. Every day, we see news about trade deals, such as the renegotiated NAFTA, the UK's preparations for Brexit, and even a growing trade war between the US and China. But what does this all mean? What can we learn from history about the ups and downs of international trade, and what can we expect in the future? To talk on this topic, and many others I expect, I'm joined by Jeff Frieden, who is professor at Harvard University's Department of Government. He's written books such as Currency Politics, The Political Economy of the Exchange Rate Policy, and Global Capitalism, Its Fall and Rise in the 20th Century. Hello, Jeff, and thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Also joining us today is Doug Irwin. He's John French Professor of Economics at Dartmouth College. He has also served on the staff of the President's Council of Economic Advisers and the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. Doug is the author of Clashing Over Commerce, A History of U.S. Trade Policy and Trade Policy Disaster, Lessons from the 1930s. Hello, Doug, and thanks for being with us as well. Good to be here. So I'd like to start things off with you, Doug, by bringing in your new book. In Clashing Over Commerce, you look at the history of U.S. trade policy as moving from protectionism to openness. Can you give us an outline of what you talk about in the book and then maybe give us an idea of how President Trump's current America First trade policy fits in with that history? Sure. Well, um, it is a sort of ambitious book in the sense that I want to cover over 250 years of U.S. trade policy history, and you need some sort of organizing framework to think about that. And I started with first principles. What do governments try to achieve by imposing tariffs? And I look mainly at U.S. tariffs because that's sort of the, the heart of U.S. trade policy. And I came up with the three R's revenue, restriction, and reciprocity. So governments try to impose taxes on imports either to raise revenue for the government or to restrict imports to protect domestic producers from foreign competition, or they use it to reach reciprocity or trade agreements with other countries to open up markets and trade more. And furthermore, what's interesting is that we can delineate uh, the history of U.S. trade policy to three separate eras in which one of those objectives is sort of the dominant one. So prior to the Civil War in the United States, which occurred in 1860, The most important sort of rationale for trade policy was revenue. In fact, the Constitution of the United States, which delegates powers to the Congress to impose these taxes, it was very much a revenue-based argument for the Constitution in in getting the government off the ground. We have the Civil War, which redistributes political power within the United States, so there's a political economy angle, and we get a new regime where restriction is sort of the main purpose of trade policy, to keep out imports, protect domestic producers from foreign competition. And then finally, at the Great Depression and other political realignment in the United States, sort of an exogenous shock, we get the shift of the third, our reciprocity, where we start uh, reaching trade agreements with other countries. That's also associated with a, an institutional change, um, the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act, in which uh, Congress delegates trade powers to the president. So the big question, I think, for today is, are we entering a fourth hour? Is the Trump administration something new, something historically unprecedented or not? I think that largely remains to be uh, seen. But I do think that uh, you know his rhetoric is very much that uh, we want reciprocity. He has a slightly different view of reciprocity than has been uh, in the recent past. He says he wants to cut all these trade deals. 
But there's also protectionist rhetoric built in there and a, a bunch of other things. So I think we'll have to sort of look back after another two or four or six years or so. And we'll get into uh, Trump's trade policy, I'm sure, a lot more. So I'll hold on yeah, to yeah. right there. Jeff, do you have any points you want to add? or I, go I, I would hasten to add that Doug's book is brilliant and masterful. It's an amazing survey of a very complex history of American trade policy. It is not a short book, but it well re uh, rewards the reader. And so anyone interested in international trade or in American history, for that matter, should read the book. So buy the book, read the book. Thank you very much. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> I could have sent my sentiment myself. So it's great having you two experts here because I think for the general public, there's a lot of terms being bandied around that they may not understand that seem sound kind of arcane. So Trump's America first trade policy has been described by some as a return to mercantilism. So first off, can both of you or one of you explain what is mercantilism? And is it something that should we be worried about it if it looks like we're heading down that path? Well, mercantilism, as we would say it in the States, ah. as opposed to mercantilism, mercantilism was the tried and, and tested form of international trade policy or international economic policy for many hundreds of years, especially in the colonial empires of the European colonial powers. It is, in fact, the reason, or at least the ostensible reason for the American Revolution, what the Americans were protesting against at the Boston Tea Party and other things, things that go down in American history as things like the Stamp Act and taxes on others were really component parts of British mercantilist control on American trade. So the original mercantilism was a, a mechanism by which colonial powers used military force, power, to extract resources from the colonies, that is to buy things as cheaply as possible from the colonies and sell things as expensively as possible to the colonies. That was what the colonists didn't like. They had to sell their tobacco to Britain. While they could have gotten more money by selling it to the Dutch, they had to buy their linens and from the British while they could have gotten them more cheaply from the Dutch, perhaps. So mercantilism was control of trade in order to benefit the mother country, in this case, the colonial power. Now, there's an aspect of mercantilism, which is closely related to what people refer to or mean when they refer to Donald Trump as a mercantilist or a neo-mercantilist. The mercantilists were very interested in stimulating the export of their products. So British mercantilism was all about finding markets for British manufactured exports in the colonies or elsewhere. And in that context, having a positive trade balance that is exporting more than you import was an important goal. So mercantilists were all about exporting our products and importing as few as possible of other people's products and as cheaply as possible, which is what mercantilist controls tried to do. When Donald Trump complains that the U.S. is running a trade deficit, what he's complaining about is a classic mercantilist complaint. We want to run trade surpluses, says the mercantilist. We want other people to be buying our stuff. We don't want to be buying their stuff. We want our factories to run because other people are buying our exports. We don't want our factories to be closed down because we have to buy imports from the rest of the world. Maybe raw materials, maybe things that we don't produce ourselves. So Trump is clearly in the realm of a neo-mercantilist view of the world saying that the more things we sell abroad, the better. The fewer things we buy abroad, the better. And the fact that we're running a trade deficit is a bad thing and we should try to alleviate that. I should say, I will perhaps preempt Doug, he's the economist in the room, but I should say that the classical and neoclassical, the standard mainstream 99.9% .9 economist view is this is completely backwards. 
John Maynard Keynes, I think, put it perhaps most cogently by saying that imports are the gains from trade and exports are its cost. That is, we sell goods abroad in order to be able to buy things from the rest of the world. And the an analogy that I might use is a farm family doesn't grow wheat to be able to eat the wheat. It grows wheat to be able to sell the wheat so that it can buy the other stuff that it needs. And the modern economic view of how trade should be observed is running a trade deficit is not necessarily a bad thing. That selling, there's no nothing particularly goal-worthy, shall we say, or nothing particularly admirable about running a trade surplus. And so the goal of running a trade surplus is a chimera. It's not, it's a misleading goal. It may have positive effects for some people in the economy, but negative effects for others. I should also say, and, and then I'll shut up and let, let Doug talk because he's the, the, the true expert in the room. I should also say that President Trump's focus on bilateral trade deficits is particularly curious because it shouldn't really matter to us whether we're running a trade deficit with any particular country. You might worry if we ran a, a trade deficit for too long, because the way you run a trade deficit is typically by borrowing from the rest of the world. And like any entity, firm, family, country, if you borrow too much and accumulate debt that you can't service, and if you're using the money you borrowed for bad purposes or non-productive purposes, that's a problem. But running, if we ran a trade deficit with China and a surplus with Canada and they balanced each other out, it wouldn't be a problem. So the focus on bilateral trade deficits is curious to say the least. I think it gets and perhaps a little closer to the point that Doug was making before about reciprocity. Trump's rhetoric about bilateral trade deficits may be in at least one view is that this is simply a way of trying to get other countries to open their markets to us more than they are currently opened. Yeah, I, I can't add much more to that. That's uh, terrific. And um, I think the way uh, President Trump thinks about it is that uh, he uses the balance of trade as a way of judging whether we're winning or losing as a result of trade. So we have because we have these big trade deficits, in his mind, we're losing. We're losing $800 billion a year. That's the merchandise trade deficit we have. But it doesn't include services, which don't really count in his mind. He's a manufacturing guy and a commodities guy. And that's very much similar to the, the mercantilist thought that existed pre-Adam uh, Smith. Adam Smith, of course, had his famous attack on mercantilism and the wealth of nations. The mercantilists back then wanted a balanced trade surplus because they wanted an inflow of gold, either for wealth purposes or an inflationary monetary policy or what have you. That's not so much the concern today, but uh, Trump, I think, is coming at it from a very simple uh, business person's perspective. If you're running a business as he ran casinos and he ran a real estate business, you can't have outlays greater than your inflows. So you have to be earning revenue to cover your costs uh, because otherwise, as a business, you'll go out of business. Uh, Paul Krugman wrote a great, uh, beautiful little essay called A Country is Not a Company um, <laughs> over a decade ago for the Harvard Business Review. And he said, you know, th that analogy really doesn't work. Uh, a company can go broke. A country is in a little bit different situation with regard to the balance of trade. And it's exactly as Jeff said, there's nothing inherently economically good or bad about running a trade surplus or a trade deficit. Unfortunately, that sort of motivates a lot of his uh, tweets and rhetoric and his thinking about trade is that we have to impose tariffs on countries because we have a trade deficit or we need new trade agreements to get rid of these uh, trade deficits that the U.S. has. Can I add – I'd like to add something to this because I think there's an, another aspect of this in which to some extent the corporate analogy might hold because to run a trade deficit, you have to finance it. That is, if, if we do buy more from the rest of the world than we sell, we have to borrow the difference. Firms, however, borrow all the time. 
And when a firm borrows, we don't say, oh, this firm is borrowing money. That's bad. What we say is, are they using the money for a productive purpose? If GM is borrowing at 5% and investing in factories that are going to earn 10%, then both GM and the lender are going to be better off. So what we should be asking, so our current trade deficits are associated with the fact that the U.S. is borrowing substantially from the rest of the world. The real economic and political economy question we should be asking is, are we making good use of the money that we're borrowing from the rest of the world or borrowing more generally? Is the government making good use of the money that it's borrowing from both the rest of the world and from Americans? I think the sad reality of the past 25 or 30 years of American political and economic history is we have often borrowed many trillions of dollars from the rest of the world without investing them productively. We have the experience of the 2001 to 2007 period in which the U.S. borrowed $5 trillion from the rest of the world, between a half a trillion and a trillion dollars every year from the rest of the world. And yet our investment rate as a share of GDP went down during that period. We were not investing in new productive assets. We were investing in new iPhones and consumer credit and a housing bubble that eventually burst. So the concern about borrowing from the rest of the world should not be that we're borrowing. It should be what we're using the borrowed funds for, which I think is a crucial question in today's Trump's America. What are the policies that are being pursued leading to from the long-term productive capacity of the country? And what are they going to contribute to? I mean, clearly trade policy is part of that. If we end up protecting a lot of American industries, is that going to contribute to the long-term prosperity of the U.S.? I guess I'd just add to that, that that here's where there's a fundamental contradiction, I think, between what the president wants to achieve and what his policies are actually doing. Uh, because just as Jeff uh, said, there's a relationship between the fiscal deficit, what we're spending it on, what we're borrowing for, and the trade deficit. And unfortunately, we're at sort of the peak of the business cycle in the United States. We have an unemployment rate below 4%, and yet the fiscal deficit is growing up quite dramatically. Next year, we're supposed to have a fiscal deficit of $1 trillion which usually you're not supposed to do that at the peak of the business cycle. You sort of do that in recessions. Um, But what that means is that, so we have a fiscal monetary policy mix that's leading to a stronger dollar that is leading, going to lead to a larger trade deficit. So he says he wants to reduce the trade deficit that we're on the bad end of these uh, bad trade deals. But his macroeconomic policies are exactly leading to the thing that he doesn't want, which is larger fiscal deficit. I guess the one caveat I'd have to what Jeff said is that the U.S. is in a very different position than almost any other country in the world. Because uh, the dollar is the reserve currency, we have this exorbitant privilege. So we are borrowing in a sense, but it's other countries really want to hold dollars. So they're never going to really call our loans, so to speak. That's how the U.S. can get away from this, get away with We hope fiscal, they're never going to call right, our loans. Right, until they don't. <laughs> uh, so we can get away with this fiscal profligacy for much longer than many other countries could. But you never know when that day of reckoning might come. And it's, that's not necessarily a good thing. The fact that we have this exorbitant privilege does give us the opportunity, us, the United States, the opportunity to run fiscal deficits that other countries would not be able to run. But again, I would go back to what are the deficits being used for? It, it, I mean, I suppose we should be happy that we're able to borrow more than we would were the dollar not the key currency. But I worry about, you know, the fact that we are not, in fact, investing in things that are, are leading to the long-term, a long-term increase in the productivity of the country. I think that in, in some sense, the scope that the government has to engage in fairly irresponsible fiscal policies is a problem, not, a, not an opportunity or an opportunity lost. I'd agree with that. Absolutely. So, so to draw on your points to, and to play devil's advocate, is it possible that Trump has started an important debate about 
you know, what those deficits are being used for, even though maybe for the wrong reason. I don't think there's been any debate on it at all. I think one of the sad things in the U.S. is that we've ended up arguing about aspects of policy that are, they may be important, but there has been very little discussion over many of the quite problematic policies that the Trump administration, problematic from my view, at least, policies that the Trump administration have pursued, whether on fiscal policy or on trade policy. I mean, ironically, the Republicans who have long at least thought of themselves as the party of fiscal conservatism, I mean, if you look since the early 1980s with Ronald Reagan, essentially every Republican administration has dramatically increased the deficit. And then the Democrats have tried to bring it back down like in the Clinton years. So the Republicans, after complaining for eight years about Democratic deficits, have come into office and massively ballooned the deficit in exactly the wrong time in the middle at the height of the cycle. So the Republicans aren't going to complain. The Democrats sort of like the idea of stimulating the economy because we get to full employment. So they're not going to complain on trade. The Republicans seem to have been completely converted to Donald Trump's protectionist or mercantilist views. The Democrats have, or many of the Democrats have been pretty protectionist for a while. So they're not complaining. So you have a sort of a, a bizarre consensus or quasi consensus in favor of two sets of policies, macroeconomic and trade, which I think are very problematic and should be debated. Yeah, I guess I just say it hasn't led to a productive discussion in the United States. It's focused on trade and other things, which I think are a secondary issue compared to addressing the fiscal uh, challenges we face educational investments. Um, we face a whole bunch of challenges as a country. Trade is not top among them at all. And so to divert focus on that, what other countries are doing to us, taking advantage of us, A, I don't think it's right. And B, it's not a productive debate. Thinking about what, what focus is on, thinking about the, the kind of person Trump appeals to with his rhetoric about America first and we should buy American. Do you think those kind of people square the fact that they want to buy cheap merchandise from China? Do they understand that by buying cheap merchandise from places like China, that's contributing to the deficit? How would that square? Well, I guess I'd say two things. First of all, if you ask people in public opinion polls, in, in principle, should you buy American? Of course, they'll say yes over uh, foreign-made products. But then when they're actually confronted with two different prices, they're not really willing to pay much of a premium uh, for American products. So you're right, the pocketbook really does rule in terms of uh, a lot of how uh, people behave. I had a second point, but that's <laughs> when we talk about, I think the politics of trade or the politics of buying American are very similar in the sense that if you ask people, would you rather have cheaper goods or more expensive goods to say, well, cheaper, of course. So as consumers, they're in favor of cheap imports. But when you talk about trade or in particular about the kinds of problems that have been related to trade, they, they tend to place, and this is simply coming off public opinion polls and, and surveys that, that a lot of people have done, people tend to place a lot more emphasis on the job-related effects of trade, and particularly the jobs lost to trade. So the jobs gained by trade typically don't get much focus because if a new job is created in an industry, that person doesn't know that his job was created because of exports. If a factory closes and the factory owner is saying, we're moving to China or we're moving to Mexico or we're out of business because of Mexico or Vietnam or Bangladesh, people associate that with a job loss due to trade. So I think there's a, and actually there is good evidence by political scientists and political economists that politically people pay a heavier price for jobs lost to trade in their district than for jobs lost for other reasons. So job Job losses to trade are politically very sensitive. And, and to answer your question more, somewhat more broadly, I do think, I don't think we should downplay this. Large parts of the United States, like large parts of Western Europe, have been 
suffering through real economic distress, not just since the rise of China, but for the last 30 or 40 years, the decline of traditional manufacturing industries, whether in the north of England or northeastern France or the United States, especially the Midwest of the United States, has created real problems. These are communities that had typically, in some cases, relied on one or two or three factories. The factories close, wages decline, unemployment rises, local property values go down, property taxes go down, local public services start to suffer. The community starts to fall apart. And these areas then find themselves losing their most dynamic and best educated people. There are social problems, the opioid epidemic uh, and alcoholism rise. So it's not that people have invented problems. These are communities in distress. And then what I think happens, at least in many instances, is a politician comes along and finds foreigners whether immigrants or trade, as a useful target to explain the distress and to try to deal with it. I don't think it's the ultimate cause of this distress, but I think it becomes a useful target for politicians. So in your work, you, you've looked at uh, the history of, of the economy and the history of the US economy and, and, and international economics. Does the current decade or the current moment that we're having with, with Trump's rhetoric and, and the trade war with China, for example, does it remind you of any periods or trends in the past which saw similar retrenchment and rejection of international economic integration? Well, it's interesting. I, I did a short book on uh, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff of 1930, which is sort of one of the more infamous – of all the tariff acts in American history, it's probably one people have heard about. And it's also in my uh, larger book as well. And it's, what's interesting is it's usually thought that's a response to the Great Depression, that the econ world economy was going down, so they introduced tariffs to protect. But actually, it was introduced into the House – it was a campaign issue in the presidential election of 1928 – um, and it was introduced in the House began hearings in early 1929. This is the period sort of like today when the stock market was booming, when the unemployment rate was really low, the economy is growing like gangbusters. Um, and it passed the House in May of 1929. Once again, six months or three months before the business cycle peak, the economy was still doing well. So in other words, the tariff was being considered precisely when you wouldn't expect it to be considered when conditions were were good. Of course, now ultimately it took effect in 1930, after the, we had the stock market crash and the economy began going down, but I still a little worry about uh, the parallel today in the sense that everything is going pretty well, and all of a sudden we're beginning to move in a protectionist direction in the United States. We have steel tariffs. There's consideration of car tariffs. Obviously, a lot of tariffs on China. So just when things are getting good, uh, you know, you sort of worry about overconfidence and the impact of some of these uh, trade policy effects that will uh, lead to uh, you know retaliation against the U.S. Other countries not obeying the rules, and you could get a deterioration of the world trading system, much as you saw in the late 20s leading into the 30s. I, I agree completely with Doug. I find other trends also very troubling and, frankly, also quite reminiscent of the, peer, of the interwar period, the 20s and into the 1930s. We, even though economies are now growing, there's been a lot of, there have been a lot of economic problems in the last 15 years. The crisis of 2007, 8, 9, and in Europe, continuing on practically into today, was the longest and deepest recession the West has experienced since the 1930s. And there are ongoing problems that have led by means that we could discuss and that are somewhat controversial to arise in what we might call populism, uh, populism of the right and of the left, but in particular of the right, where political leaders, many of them now in office, have come up with, I think, very simplistic solutions to very complex problems. And that's a dangerous formula. It was a dangerous formula in the 1920s and 1930s when leaders, political leaders, found ways of creating mass political movements that, in a sense, 
defied the existing elites and existing political institutions, existing political parties, and tried to create a new reality, including new alternative facts about the world, and took their countries in what ended up being pretty disastrous directions. So I do find some very troubling parallels with the interwar period. I worry that far too many of our compatriots are being convinced about policies and political positions that are leading them down a very scary path, frankly. So thinking thinking about the sort of the populism and, and for many people it's a reaction to sort of the the Great Recession and the fact that inequality is uh, still seems rampant, and so you look at President Trump's uh, America First policy on trade, trade war on China. For a lot of people, the global capitalist order doesn't seem to be fit for purpose anymore. It doesn't seem to be working for people. It's not keeping them employed. There's no security anymore. What would you say to that? Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a big, big picture question. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, I guess I'd say a few things. The first, which is not going to make me popular anywhere in Western Europe or North America, is that the true effects and the most extraordinarily positive effects of the current global capitalist order and globalization are in the developing world. I think when historians look back on this period 100 or 200 years from now, what they'll see is not 10% unemployment in, in, in Germany or Britain. What they'll see is 2 billion people in Asia lifted out of absolute poverty, abject poverty into the middle class of the world, countries that had been suffering in terrible economic conditions and billions of people in terrible economic conditions finally having an opportunity to join the modern world with modern living standards and modern technologies. That's an extraordinary achievement. It could not have been achieved without, if we talk about China, India, Vietnam, whatever you want to talk about, completely implausible to think of that happening without those countries having access to the world's markets, the world's capital, the world's technologies, the world's ideas. So that's an extraordinary achievement. I mean, billions of people have access to opportunities not previously open to them. But that, you know, that's not, that doesn't sell in the domestic politics of any of our countries. And for good reason. I mean, the, the, the U.S. government is about the interests of Americans. And there, I think there is some truth to the idea that the current wave of globalization, in some sense, has failed or not has not achieved what it might have achieved. It or to be much simpler about it, its benefits have not been as broadly distributed as we might like. Uh, we all know that virtually any economic policy and virtually any economic process is going to create both winners and losers. And I think one of the real problems that we've seen in both the United States and Western Europe is that there have been plenty of winners. You look at the U.S., we've got a very prosperous Northeast, a very prosperous West Coast, very prosperous cities in between, so prosperous that they're bursting at the seams and property values are skyrocketing. And then you have a large segment of the country that has not benefited. Median household income in the U.S. has been stagnant for almost 20 years. In the Northeast, it's way up. In the Midwest, it's down from 2001. So median household income is the, the best measure of how that average family is doing. The country as a whole is much richer than it was 20 years ago. The average household, the median household, is not much richer. And that's a problem. I think that there's a real problem with trying to ensure that the benefits of global capitalism, of international trade, of economic growth more generally are more equally distributed. I don't think that Donald Trump's policies are going to do much for that. But 
I think that the rise of this kind of populist sentiment expressed whether by Donald Trump or by Bernie Sanders is in many ways a, a reaction to the very real sense that a lot of people have gotten very rich, very fast, and a lot of other people have been left behind. And I think that's because there's structural shifts in the economy. There's big technological changes that's uh, with e-commerce and what have you, a whole finance, uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. You sometimes hear that it's globalization backlash that's driving this populist moment. But I think we have to sort of unpack that because I think, you know, Brexit, I don't think that was a trade-related phenomenon. It's very much related to sovereignty and immigration. In the U.S., there's not a lot of public sentiment in favor of protectionism per se. Um, it's not a lot, of, a lot of industries or labor unions are demanding protection. The president sort of introduced that. Instead, there's been much more concern about immigration. So um, I think when we think about globalization, it's less of a trade backlash per se, although that goes into some of the fears about the decline of some Midwestern cities and the industrial heartland. But it's really fear about immigration and uh, loss of control in sense of one's destiny. It's interesting you've, you've talked about Brexit because that was going to be a, a quick segue for me <laughs> to talk about the UK because we're in the UK and, and a lot of our listeners will be. So to change the, the, the topic line slightly, a lot of people who are pro-Brexit suggest that the US will be the UK's next big market. And once we leave the EU, there will be ships full of US produce waiting outside our ports to uh, supply us uh, with stuff that the EU can't or won't be able to supply us with. Is there any truth to this? Is, is the future of the UK's trading with the US? I wouldn't count on that at all. Um, first of all, your natural trading partner is Western Europe. You're so close. The trade ties are so uh, you know well-developed and integrated there in terms of supply chains and just the sheer volume of trade that takes place. It relatively, US is a large trading partner with the, uh, the UK, but it's not uh, dominant by any means. So I certainly wouldn't want uh, or think that it would be good for the UK to sacrifice ties to Europe to, on the hope that uh, there's going to be some great expansion in transatlantic commerce. In addition, I know there's been some talk of a U.S.-U.K. bilateral uh, free trade agreement. These things take a lot of time to negotiate. There are a lot of very difficult issues, particularly regarding agriculture, because being in the EU, uh, British agriculture has been protected. There's a lot of differences in our regulatory treatment of uh, chlorinated chicken and uh, GMOs <laughs> and things of that sort. So the idea that there could be very quickly a new FTA probably not going to be the case. And then, of course, there's the American political process. So even if this administration or the next one could negotiate one relatively quickly, which is unlikely, it still has to go through Congress. And there are a lot of pressures. And even though Britain is viewed very favorably in the United States, there's, it can be held up very qu quickly due to political reasons. Um, and that process does not work quickly at all. Yeah, I think the hope that some kind of special relationship, which many people in Britain seem to think still exists between the U.S. and the U.K. and may exist in some kind of cultural or personal level, that that will carry over into our economic relations is, is uh, you know, fantasy. The U.S., its trade with Europe is far more important to the U.S. than its trade with Britain. And the prospects for a massive increase in that trade with Britain, I think, are, are very limited. And I, I would emphasize what Doug said. I think the chances of the U.S. adopting any free trade agreement in the next few years are virtually nil. There's no enthusiasm about that on either side of the aisle. So thinking about Brexit and thinking about Trump's uh, trade war with China, are we Brexiting and trade warring our way into another recession, do you think? Here in the UK? Globally. Globally in the US or the UK? Globally. Thinking about the trade war with China, specifically in the US and Brexit here, obviously the US is a bigger economic mover than the, than the UK is. Is that a risk with the kind of tactics that are happening now that we may end up, you know, going down the tubes as we did in 2008? 
Uh, I wouldn't say that it's going to cause a global conflagration of, of that sort, but I think what it can do is shave off percentage points of world growth. So the IMF is already sort of worried about that. So we're disrupting supply chains. There's much more uncertainty. World trade is still growing, but uh, if the, the rules deteriorate and countries move in a more protectionist direction, once again, it's not necessarily recession or depression causing, but it can be very disruptive to the world economy and uh, uh, reduce growth from what otherwise would be. You know, trade is a relatively small portion of most of our economies, so even a, a substantial uh, barriers to trade wouldn't have that big an impact on their economies. I, however, would worry about the broader effects of the rise of this kind of what you might call economic nationalism more generally, especially if it leads to really substantial conflicts among the, the various member states of the, of the international economy. It's one thing to have tariffs. I mean, we've had trade wars we have the chicken war with Europe. We've had trade wars with other countries for a long time. The one with China is a much greater magnitude than, than others in the past. But if we regard that as simply a passing battle to try to open up the Chinese market or try to get some favors for American industry, it might pass, then I think it, the longer term effects are likely to be relatively small. However, if it turns out either that this trade war with China really goes on for a very long time and becomes very disruptive, or that it turns into a really strong protectionist strain in American policy more generally, which then is applied to other countries and, and leads to retaliation. And, and we sort of go down this spiral that characterized to some extent the 1930s as well, then I would worry about the longer term effects. I think to the extent that anything, anything that, that really threatens the underlying structure of the global economy, which some of these measures might, would be bad news and, and quite disruptive. So I, I think if it stays at the level that it is now, it's worrisome, but not catastrophic. But there is at least the germ of possible catastrophes. I don't think that in 1929 or 1930, people thought that depression would be as severe as it ended up being. But And throughout that, you know, if you look at the history, as Doug has done in so much detail, from 29 to 34, which is really the depth of the depression, there's this gradual downward spiral well, where governments realize that all this terrible stuff is happening and they try to stop it. And they have meetings and conferences and sign treaties and agreements and nothing works. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. And, you know, you read the contemporary accounts of that terrible five-year period that took us into the depths of the Great Depression, and you sort of get a sense of that it could happen again. You, you could see countries pushing themselves over the brink out of desperation. So I do worry about that, and it does give me pause. So uh, sort of getting t towards the end now, but one thing I'm really interested in is how, how do we – how do we work against or how do we defeat this kind of economic populism? Is there any way, given the way we've set up the global economy, given inequality seems to be growing, what you said about the developing world is really, really interesting and actually something I think people don't think about. But certainly in the West, as long as this is the way the sort of uh, the cookie crumbles for people, are we kind of stuck with, with Trump-like figures for now? Or is there anything that policymakers can do or people in government can do to sort of try and sort of haul us back? away from this kind of economic populism, which can be potentially destructive. What's interesting is that there are a lot of new ideas are sort of bubbling uh, up to the surface, um, universal basic income, uh, new investments in education. So I think a lot of people are policymakers, academics, others are trying to grapple with the big changes that we've seen in the economy. I think you put your finger on it in terms of uh, there's a very a much a regional variation in, in who's benefiting from economic growth. Uh, and some places are just being left behind, smaller towns and Communities in the Midwest, uh, 
in England as well, uh, outside of London. So place-based policies, uh, people are thinking about all sorts of different things. Whether there's a political will or we really know what to do about it is another question, but I think there is a rethink about what we need to do to move forward because once again, there's a lot of, it, it's partly globalization, but it's really a lot of structural shifts um, and a lot of technological change that has sort of uh, reduced the value, unfortunately, of, of people's work, uh, particularly uh, less educated men who used to get, find mass employment man- manufacturing, just can't, that those opportunities aren't there anymore. And what opportunities can be, you know, replace that and, and, and help out these people if they're not willing to move in particular? It used to be labor mobility was considered, you know, that's the way uh, regions would adjust. That's the way new economic opportunities would be sort of created. You have to leave the small towns and move into the cities. But if people, if mobility has gone down, people aren't leaving their towns, then the question is, what do you do about that? It's a very difficult question. An addition on that is, I think one of the principal reasons a lot of the research shows as to why mobility has gone down is related to this regional divergence in prosperity. People can't afford to leave these struggling small towns and move to New York or Boston or Chicago or London. It's too expensive. You can't sell your home or move out of your rental and and take a job in New York if you're an unskilled worker and hope to live. It's just not feasible. And actually, a lot of them don't want to move. There's a wonderful book called Janesville, which is what happens when a GM plant closes in Wisconsin. And many of those workers were offered opportunities in other states to work at same wages and in different plants. They simply didn't want to move. That's where their community was. Their kids were in school. And so uh, about half of them started commuting very long distances to keep those jobs. The other half that stayed, their economic prospects weren't very good. Right. And and there's no real reason why people should have to leave the small communities that they're comfortable in. I think Doug said, I think the words that we really are trying to think about, first of all, things like education, infrastructure, place-based policies, I think all of these matter. I think there's a broader issue here as well. In my view, one of the reasons we're in the political trouble that we're in is that existing political leaders, political institutions, governments have failed on at least a couple of dimensions. I think of them as two in particular. There are failures of compensation and failures of representation. Failures of compensation are people who have been left behind by technological change, by trade, globalization, whatever you want to think of it as, the appropriate thing to do is to try to help them adapt to a new economic order by encouraging or, or strengthening the educational institutions or the ability to move if they want to move, their technological training, all of these things that could be done and should be done from a broad social perspective have not been done in the U.S. at least, at least not adequately. So failures of compensation in the sense that we do need to, to worry about those who are left behind by globalization or by technological change. And then failures of representation in the sense that for far too long, our political discourse really didn't take seriously the concerns of people in these small towns that were that were suffering. Everybody was being told that things were fine. We recovered well from the Great Recession. The economy's booming. We have zero unemployment or, you know, essentially full employment. And too many of our citizens look around and say, that's not my reality. And where are the people who are going to worry about people like me? And so I think there was a gap left, an opening left for populists who are trying to sell simplistic solutions to come along and say, it's all the foreigners or it's all the immigrants or it's all you know globalization. I think that we really have to take seriously the legitimate concerns of people whose lives have not gotten better and who don't see many prospects for the future. And if we don't take those concerns seriously, in a sense, we get what we deserve. Okay. Final question to to both of you, just a quick answer. If you had 
15 minutes with President Trump tomorrow, what would you say to him? I'd like to know your thoughts, both of your thoughts on that. That's very easy for me because I read this book called Fear by Bob Woodward and his economic advisors, Gary Cohn in particular, insisted to him repeatedly that uh, trade deficits had nothing to do with tariff levels and that we shouldn't worry about trade deficits. And he said, I won't get the quote exactly right. You're wrong. I'm right. And if you tell me otherwise, I just don't believe you. So I wouldn't bother to spend 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> because, uh, I just figure if they couldn't make headway, then uh, certainly talking about international economics, I wouldn't make any headway either. Well, I'm surprised to know that I might be more optimistic than Doug, although I'm sure I will never get those 15 minutes. I think what I would try to do, and maybe this is more what I would try to do with a Trump supporter, is say, if you're really worried about middle-class Americans and working-class Americans, and you really want to do something for them, here are a set of policies that will really help their standard of living. Here are the things that will really make them better off. You need to invest in community colleges, in vocational training, in transferring credits from community colleges to state schools, in getting people to have the skills that they need in a modern economy, to get them up to speed for a modern economy. I would not mention trade. I would not mention immigration. I would not mention globalization because, of course, he's right and I'm wrong on whatever I would, we would talk about and try to push Trump supporters, not the Donald himself, in the direction of understanding that there are ways of addressing the concerns of middle-class Americans or middle-class Europeans without taking it out on foreigners or immigrants. Well, it sounds like a fantastic place for us to end. Jeff Frieden, Doug Irwin, thank you so much for speaking to us for The Ballpark. My pleasure. You're welcome. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks to Jeff Frieden and Doug Irwin for speaking to me today. This extra inning was produced by Michaela Herman, and the Ballpark Podcast is supported with the help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show, so email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk or you can send us a tweet at at lse underscore us and tell your friends about us all your friends the content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the us center or of the london school of economics thanks for listening <laughs>